I don't know about you, but that freaks me out a little bit, that music thing. <laughs> survey? No, okay. Um, but I'm, I'm excited to be here. Um, my name is Nelson Jenkins. I'm the youth pastor here. I work with the teens and try to keep them corralled as much as possible. And if you're a parent of one of the teens, you know that that's not really true. Um, they just run wild. So, um, But like I said, I just we just got here from um, southern Indiana. We were dropping my son off. He's going to be going down to a mission school for like five months. And so we were down there. And as we were driving down, we were carpooling with my brother-in-law and sister-in-law and their kids. And so I, I was following them because they had the GPS. And, and I was like, I'll just follow them. It would just be easier. And I'm, I kind of know where I'm going. So we're going down. And all of a sudden, it's like 65 or 70 miles an hour. You know, that, you know, you know how it is when you're driving the highway. There's an ish. You know, it's like if you're within 10 miles, you're okay. So we're going. And all of a sudden, I'm just like, man, they are cruising. They are going so fast. And so I'm trying to keep up, and I was like, they're still, you know, getting ahead of me. And I was like, all right, I'm going to probably end up losing them here. So I'm speeding up, and I'm just thinking of all the excuses I'm going to use, you know, when the police officer pulls me over. And all of a sudden, my wife gets a text from my brother-in-law and says, should we keep following you? Because you're going pretty fast. (laughs) And I was like, what's he talking about? He's like, why are you out there? And Susie goes, Nelson... We passed them like 10 minutes ago. So this whole time, I'm following somebody else, and I'm just like, thank God we didn't end up in New Jersey or something. But it's just one of those things where, I, I mean, you know, we, we had a good laugh about that the rest of the time we were there. But when it comes to directions, I'm one of those weird guys who I, I actually at, at times will, will stop and ask for directions. I think I learned my lesson after many, many, you know, mistakes. I remember one time we were in New York, and we were driving back from a retreat from one of my ch- the churches there, and I took a wrong exit. I, I went the wrong way on, on Interstate 90. It was at a tollway. And if, if you know anything about those tollways, the exits are not kidding when I say they are like 30 miles apart, and there's no place to turn around there. So I got on, and I went the wrong way. And I had to go 30 miles out of my way to turn around and come back. So, so I was an hour out of my way there. And so I get to the point where I'm like, i got to ask for directions. My wife, on the other hand, doesn't really want to do that. So I'm the one that does that. But then it's like when, we, when it comes to fixing things or doing stuff around the house or putting things together, we're totally opposite. You know what? There's directions there, and I just kind of laugh at them because I'm a man. And, and if there aren't pictures, there's no use for me because it's never going to work. I'm going to have 10 extra screws that I'm not going to know what they're for. And so when we think about, like, needing help, how we're saying, we should ask for help. There are times when we should ask for help. And in our lives, think about for a second. I just want us to think about for a second. Think about in your life, when was one of the darkest, hardest hours of your life? One of the hardest, darkest times of your life. And then think about, when was it that you went to God and, and said, God, I need your help for this? And that's what we want to talk about this, this evening here. Because we're looking at Jesus. Today we're going to be talking about Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane. We're going to be looking at Jesus' darkest hour. And now how he went to God during that time. If you've got your um, Bibles with you, or if you don't, there should be a, a Bible in the seat back in front of you. Page 775 and 776 
on the, on the Pew Bibles. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 14, verses 32 to 42. We want to look at Jesus' darkest hour and what he went through and what we can learn from that. So as we get ready to, to read that, let's pray together. Lord, we just thank you so much for your word. We just thank you so much for how you modeled for us the way that you want us to live. I pray that we'll just learn a little bit more even today. In Jesus' name, amen. So Mark chapter 14, verses 32 to 42. Let me read that here. They went to the olive garden called Gethsemane, and Jesus said, Sit here while I go and pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he became deeply troubled and distressed. He told them, My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little farther and fell to the ground. He prayed that if it were possible, the awful hour awaiting him might pass him by. Abba, Father, he cried out, Everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then he returned and found the disciples asleep. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them again and prayed the same prayer as before. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open, and they didn't know what to say. When, when he returned to them the third time, he said, Go ahead and, and sleep. Have your rest. But no, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. So we look at this. Jesus is taking... 11 of the disciples with him as he goes because this, remember, this is just before he's going to be betrayed. He has just had a conversation with Peter. Not a pleasant conversation for Peter. Where Peter says, you know what, I'm there for you to the end. And Jesus says, before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me. Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And so he's having this conversation and then... He takes 11 disciples and he goes out because he knows the time has come that he's dreading. And as he's preparing for this, the reason he only has 11 disciples is because the one disciple that isn't with him is the one who's going to betray him. It's Judas. So he's got his 11 disciples, takes him to the garden. He says, he says to eight of them, he says, stay here. He takes Peter, James, and John, and he takes them in a little further into the garden. Peter, James, and John, as you look throughout the New Testament, are the ones closest to Jesus. They are there through all these miracles that Jesus performs. They are there during the transfiguration. If we look at Matthew 17, look at this. Here's Peter, James, and John. Okay? And if you know anything about Peter, you know that I always say this, that Peter is a lot like me. He'll say something or he'll do something and then he'll think and say maybe i shouldn't have done that or said that that's just the way peter worked and so here's peter peter james and john and it says six days later jesus took peter and the two brothers james and john led them up to a high mountain to be alone as the men watched jesus appearance was transformed so that his face shone like the sun 
and his clothes became as white as light. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus. So you picture that for a second. Jesus, all of a sudden, his face shines like the sun, and his clothes become white as light. And these three guys are watching this, and they're like, what is going on? And then Moses and Elijah, the two big patriarchs of the, of the Old Testament, show up with Jesus on this mountain. So you can imagine, here's Peter, James, and John just like, wow. Okay, and then Peter jumps out. Okay, most people would be like, I can't say a word. I'm like, this is incredible. But here's Peter. He says, Lord, it's wonderful for us to be here. If you want, I'll make three shelters for memorials. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And you can imagine Elijah and Moses turning around going, who's that guy? You know, and Jesus is like, oh, you'll get used to him, trust me. He's just, you know, he's a goof. And, and so here's Peter going, wow, we ought to just make some shelters for these guys and just kind of have a memorial here. And then it goes on and says, but even as he spoke, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Listen to him. Peter, James, and John are at this moment where all they've known is they followed Jesus throughout all these years is they've known him as the human. At this point, they get a glimpse of Jesus, the deity. Obviously, just a small part, but they are there for that. And so every, all these great things that happened, Peter, James, and John are right there beside Jesus. So now it comes to where Jesus' darkest moment, the moment where he knows what's coming. He knows the cross is coming. And we're going to talk about that in a second. So he brings them in. And, he's, and he's, it says that he's deeply troubled about the coming events. When you look at the, the Greek in this, the word that they use there is a word that really talks about agony, distress, to the point of being almost terrified. And that's where we, we kind of struggle. We're like, how could Jesus have those emotions? Because he was God. And we really have a hard time putting the humanity of God on Jesus. We, we, we get the, the, the God part. But when it comes to the fact that he had human feelings like we do, we struggle with that sometimes. But Jesus was struggling in a way that we can't comprehend because he knew what was coming up. Mark fourteen thirty four. It says, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. And then look what Luke says. We're talking about the same, the, the same um, thing that's going on here. Luke 22, verse 44. In being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. That's the agony that Jesus is going through at this moment. Because he knows what's about to come. God's full anger against our sin is going to be put on Jesus. And Jesus knows what's about to happen. Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5, it says, Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins, He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. 
So here's Jesus. He knows something bad is coming. And he goes to, to these three disciples and he says, stay and watch. Verse 34 of, of back in Mark 14. He says, stay here and watch. I'm going to go in a little further and pray. And so Jesus' prayer is, take this cup from me. And we look and we say, what is he talking about? What cup is he talking about? And the cup he's talking about is the cup of God's wrath because of our sin. When you look throughout Scripture in the Old Testament, it talks about the wrath, the cup of wrath that God has towards sin. In Revelation, it talks about God's wrath being like a cup of wrath because of, because of our sin. So Jesus says he knows that God's wrath, all of his anger toward all the sin, because Jesus knows because he is God. He knows how much God hates sin. And he says, I know that all of that, all of that anger is going to be placed on me in just a few short hours. And he's sweating blood as he tries to deal with this. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all iniquity. And so we, we look at that and we say, The wrath of God is, 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 is there. And the sin that we take so lightly, if we're honest, there is sin in our life that we take pretty lightly because it's not one of the major sins. We can think about it in our life. We can sit there and say, I, I may cheat, I may lie, I may steal, I may do other things, but you know what? It's not murder. It's not adultery. It's not these things. And so we kind of say, it's not that, that big of a deal. It's, it's not a grade A sin. All right, that's a lower grade sin, so I'm okay. But those sins that we take so lightly are the sins that are causing Jesus to pour up blood on the ground as he's, as he's dealing with the agony of what's to come. But we look at it and we say, Jesus' submission, not my will, but yours. When we look at this passage, he's praying. He says, God, if there's any way to take this cup from me, if there is any way that we can do this any other way. But then he goes on and he says, but not my will, but yours be done. And that is the key to this whole passage. When he says, not my will, but yours. Because you look back to another garden, the Garden of Eden. Guess what happened there? Adam and Eve going through the garden. God says, all of this, all of this is yours. You picture these chairs and you say, all of these chairs are yours. Sit in any one of them. Except that one right there. Sit in any other chair. Adam and Eve were no different than we are. We sit and we start looking at that chair and we say, mm, I bet that's the most comfortable chair in this whole place. And Satan comes in and says, you know what? If you sit in that chair, not only is it comfortable, but you're going to be like God. God's will was have anything out there except that. He said, eat from any of these trees except that one tree. Satan comes up and says, did he really say that? Was that really his will? So all of a sudden, Adam turns it and he says, 
Literally, what Adam was saying was, God, not your will, but mine be done. And as soon as he did that, as soon as they ate from that tree, sin came into the world. The Garden of Eden, the sin that happened in the Garden of Eden, caused the Garden of Gethsemane to have to happen. For us to be made right with God because of what happened in the Garden of Eden, Jesus had to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And when we look at that, we say, the Garden of Eden was a place of loss, a place of death. The Garden of Gethsemane was a place of victory. Not an easy victory, but a place of victory. Because I truly believe that when we look at this, we look at the cross and we look at the resurrection and we say, that is victory. I truly believe when you look at this, the victory came when Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. When Jesus was willing to say, God, whatever it is you want, I'm willing to do. As painful as I know it's going to be, that's when the victory came. When Jesus said, I'm willing. Whatever your will is, I'm willing. And that's where the victory came, because of, of Jesus surrendering to what God wanted. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, 21 and 22 says, So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. And so Adam brought death. Jesus brought life. Two gardens, two different outcomes. And we go on and we look at Luke 22, which is a parallel version to what's going on here. We see that as Jesus is going through this, God sends an angel to comfort Jesus during this time. So God says, I see what you're going through, and I'm not going to leave you alone. It says that God brought an angel to comfort Jesus. So Jesus comes back. He's out there praying. He's pouring out his heart. You've got to imagine what he's going through. He knows the wrath of God is about to come on him. And he's pouring out his heart to God. He comes back, and what does he find? His, his three closest disciples doing sleeping all right so three disciples are sleeping look what he does though it's interesting he comes up to peter and he rebukes peter and he says peter couldn't you stay awake he says i'm out right here in verse 37 he says simon are you asleep couldn't you watch with me for even one hour if i'm peter my first response is First of all, God, we just had a really big meal, and it is really late, and how do you expect me to stay awake for this long? And then second, I'd be saying, what about James and John? They're sleeping too. Yet yeah, you're coming after me. And so Peter's just kind of like, man, I don't think this is right. So Jesus comes out, and he, and he finds them sleeping, and so he goes back, and it says, he prays again, the same prayer. The same prayer. He comes back, finds them sleeping again. And it says, in Mark, it says the disciples didn't know what to say. Which is pretty amazing for Peter, because if you know Peter, he always has something to say. But here they are, they don't know what to say. They're just kind of like, oh, 
you know, we can't say anything. We fell asleep again. Then it says that third time he goes and prays and he comes back. He finds them sleeping. And he basically what he says is, you know, get up. Here comes Judas. The time has come. He goes, he prays, and he said, God, if there's any other way. He goes and he prays three times. If there's any other way for this to happen. But he goes, not my will, but yours be done. The third time he comes back and he says, get up, guys. Here comes Judas. It's over. And so we look at this and we see that three times they fail him. And I started looking and I said, Peter must have really hated the number three. All right. He's, t- he's just told that he's going to deny Jesus three times. Three times he falls asleep on Jesus when Jesus says to stay awake. So Peter's like, man, you know what? I'm just sick of that number. It has been nothing but trouble for me. And so we, when we, we think about all that these disciples are going through, that they couldn't stay awake during Jesus' hardest time of his life. And Jesus comes up and he says, it's time to go. Back in 1929, I don't know if many of you remember that, but um, um, Georgia Tech was playing Cal, California, in the Rose Bowl. In the first half, Roy Regals recovered a fumble for California. He picked it up and he started running, all excited about the fact that he is going to score a touchdown. And boy, is he excited. Fans are cheering his, his teammates are yelling and screaming, and he doesn't know. I'm going to get back in here so that the camera doesn't get mad at me. So, and he doesn't understand why his teammates are, are yelling at him until he realizes one of his teammates tackles him just a couple yards from the end zone because he'd been running the wrong way. And he gets tackled by his, one of his teammates. It, it comes up to where, it, it, back and forth, to where that ended up being the deciding factor in the game. <clears throat> they lost the Rosewell because of that one play. <clears throat> but before they found that out, at halftime, they come in, and here's Roy. He just puts a blanket over his face, and he starts crying. He's crying like a baby because he goes, man, I totally blew it. And you can picture the emotions that he's going through. I let my team down. I let my coach down in front of all those fans I looked like an idiot. I was running the wrong way. The coach comes out just as halftime is getting ready to start. And he says, the same players that started the first half, you're starting the second half. That meant that Roy was going back out there. Players get up. They start walking out. Roy doesn't move. Coach comes up and says, Roy, did you hear me? And Roy says, I can't go out there. I can't possibly go out there and face those people after what I just did. And the coach comes out and he says, get up and get back out there. The game's only half over. I want you to picture that. And then I want you to picture what Jesus did with his disciples. Because the disciples were in the same boat. The disciples, when we look at Mark, it, it talks about the fact that later on it says that when Jesus in his biggest need... They took off. They took off. The disciples weren't around during that time. They were literally running the wrong way. And Jesus afterwards comes up 
And he says to them, he says, he brings them back. And he tells them, you know what? The game's not over. There's still another half to play. And you look at what the disciples did after Jesus was taken into heaven. And the great things they did because Jesus said, I'm not giving up on you. You did run the wrong way. You did take off. But he said, you're still in the game. You've got to keep going. Don't give up. So when we look at this, we look at the garden. The garden was a place of suffering and of strength. Because when Jesus entered the garden of Gethsemane, he went in there suffering. But he came out strengthened because he said, I'm doing the will of God. As painful as that is, this is what I'm doing. I'm following what God wants for my life. So when we look at what happened with Jesus, let's look at it in our own lives and say, what is it that we can take from this? I asked you in the beginning, what was, think of one of the hardest times in your life. And what was the first thing that you did? How long did it take before you went to God and said, God, I need your help with this? As Jesus went to God during this time and prayed, during those hard times, we need to pray. But a lot of times our prayer isn't like Jesus' prayer. Our prayer is, just take it away from me. I don't want anything to do with it. I don't want to deal with this. So the next part is, we sit there and we say, we've got to go to God in prayer during those hard times. And the next thing is, we need to pray for God's will, not our own. Well, let me tell you, it is easy to sit there and say, pray when hard times come. We'd all sit there and go, yep, we should do that. I can do that. But then if you're going to seriously pray, God, not my will, but yours be done, that's a different prayer. Because we may not like the answer that we get. Because if God's will doesn't match up with our will, we've got to decide what we're going to do at that point. Are we going to pull an Adam and change our prayer to God, not your will but mine, be done? Or we're going to pull a Jesus and say, God, as hard as it is, it's your will, not mine. And then we look at and say, we need to have others with us as we deal with our garden moments. Even Jesus had his close friends that he brought with him during that time. He didn't go in there totally alone. He eventually went and prayed by himself, but he had his three close friends that he said, come with me. Keep watch and pray. Yeah, they failed at it, but they were with him. He brought them along. And that's what we need in our lives. Too many times we sit there and think, I can do this myself. I can handle this on my own. Well, let me ask you this. If Jesus brought his friends with him during his hardest moment, what makes you think that you're stronger than he is? What makes you think that you can go through your moments without friends with you to help you through that? That's what God is calling us. He called us to be a family. The church is supposed to be a family where we come together and help each other in times of need. So we look at Jesus and we say, that's what we need in our life. So let me ask you this. That garden moment that, you're, that you've gone through, maybe that you're going through in your life, how are you going to handle that situation? 
Let's look at Christ's example. And again, not my will, but yours, God. See, there are times when we enter our Garden of Gethsemane, times of distress, sorrow, loneliness. But such times can also be a time of comfort and strength if we spend them in prayer, truly seeking after God's will in our lives. God can take those moments, our lowest moments in our life, and he can make those times of victory if we allow them. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything you can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. We can take anything to God, no matter what it is. So let me ask you something. If Jesus had gone to the cross and and done this, and that's all he gave, what would that mean for us? If he would have gone and done that, what, what would that have meant for us? The Bible says that Jesus poured himself out completely for us. When he went to the cross, he didn't just give a little bit. He didn't give half. He poured himself out completely for us. He went and dealt with the anger and the wrath of God because of our sin. Because of my sin. To the point where it says on the cross, and we're going to hear about this from Matt in in a couple weeks, where God had to turn his back. God had to turn his back on Jesus because he couldn't face that sin that was put on Jesus. You want to talk about the cup that Jesus was saying, take this cup from me. That's what Jesus was talking about. He gave it all for us. What are we doing for him? Are we doing a drop? Are we saying, and I go to church. I show up on a Sunday morning. And we think that's enough. That's a drop. Or we sit there and say, you know, I give money. I help those in need sometimes when I see it. A few more drops. Or do we sit there and say, God, I am fully yours. I am totally poured out because you poured yourself out totally for me. I want to be totally poured out for you. Because if Jesus hadn't given everything at the cross, we would have no hope. If he would have taken the easy way out, remember, he had opportunities to do this, didn't he? You look at the scripture Satan went up and he tried to tempt him and say, pretty much it was like, this is the easy way out. You do this, you don't have to go to the cross. That's essentially what Satan was saying. And Jesus said, I'm not going to have any of that. Though I know the agony and the pain that's going to come. I'm not doing a drop, I'm not doing a half. I'm pouring myself out totally for you.
That's what Jesus did. Are we willing to do the same for him? Would you stand as we pray? God, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you so much that you poured yourself out completely for us. Lord, I know for myself, I don't deserve it. I don't deserve any of the pain and the anguish that you went through to save me from an eternity apart from you. I just, I just pray, Lord, that each of us here can, can look at your example for us. How you poured yourself out completely for us. And Lord, I pray that you'd, we'd be willing to give ourselves completely to you. Lord, we love you. And we just thank you so much for how much you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.